I'd love it if you could open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and also to Colossians 3. If you have one of the brown uh, church Bibles, the page numbers are 1597 for Acts 2, 1597 and page 1718 for Colossians 3. And I'm going to read to you a couple of short sections from each of those passages. Um, We have been in a a series which we will bring to a conclusion next Sunday, actually, on the, the life of the early church. And the church was a very unlikely thing in one sense. It was very small. What Jesus left behind was a very small group. Um, they were pretty demoralized, I think, and also um, pretty afraid, it would seem, in the sense that they are, we find them at the beginning of the book of Acts, the, the earliest page is the beginning of their story, um, essentially in a very cloistered, closed-off environment, um, just seeking God, praying, but not much engagement with the outer world. And then, obviously, something very radical happened. Um, the Bible describes the power of the Holy Spirit, one of the persons of the Trinity, coming upon them, and that small group of people being transformed beyond recognition, not only in the fact that they grew to many thousands almost overnight, but even in the life of the community beginning to pulsate with the life of God, I think. And we've been looking at the way Luke describes the church, describes the community life of that church, the practices, the devotions, the things that they were committed to as people who were seeking to worship God and grow closer to him and to one another. And uh, I want us to continue that this evening. So we're going to read from verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, where Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'm particularly just interested in those two words at the beginning of verse 47, where Luke has told us that they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And we're going to be interested in this dynamic of the community life, their love for adoration of God, particularly through sung worship. And I want to read to you from Colossians 3. We'll pick up from verse 12 and just read that one paragraph. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, there's this peculiar reality about uh, the Christian church, which has been true 
from the very earliest days of the church, and obviously has a prehistory in the Jewish roots that went back millennia before that, and has also been true of Christians all through history subsequent to that, which is this reality that Christians are people who love to sing. I don't know if you've ever considered how strange that is, but it's true of Christians, and it's not true of all faiths and all religions or all spiritual practices, but Christians are people who have singing and sung praise to God at the very center of their devotional life, particularly the corporate life, and I want us to think about that. Now, obviously, um, if you've traveled much, if you've visited other churches, different kinds of churches, if you've read much of church history, you'll know that the style and ways in which Christians do it, sing, I mean, have been as diverse as there are cultures, really. You have everything from, you know, the way the early church sung, we're not totally sure, but very, in the early centuries, it developed into a kind of way of, uh, of chanting, I suppose, and eventually moved to more kind of choral way of doing uh, worship and singing. You have, in more recent times, like everything from soft rock to hip-hop to bluegrass, to, um, you know, the kind of more Pentecostal styles of worship, gospel, and really there's just no limit to um, the way sung worship has expression stylistically. And that also is a huge area of division among Christians, um, partly because our personal preferences and histories come into play, and also people who bring kind of theological arguments to play onto that kind of stuff. But I'm really not interested in, in that tonight, um, the style stuff. It's not that it's not important it's just that it's not really the most important thing. The most important thing we want to think about is why, <clears throat> why praising God in this way is an irreplaceable, necessary, and essential part of Christian worship, of Christian devotion. And I don't know if you've ever given much thought to why that might be the case. Now, I know that um, in any room of Christians, you will have people who fit in different boxes when it comes to what it means to praise God and why, why we sing and what you feel about that. There are people who, who come to church wishing that it was nothing but a long, protracted opportunity to sing because you love group singing or because you're musical or whatever it is that, it, that particularly floats your boat. And there's others of you who just sort of come to church and grimly endure the praise and the singing just because you feel like you ought to get through it and you just grit your teeth and hope, hope it ends as quick as possible. We know also that there are people who um, come to church and they're, they're totally focused on the aesthetics. So whether the music is good and whether the guitar's playing in tune or in time and all these kinds of things is, is, is what occupies you. And others who do not have a musical bone in their body but inflict their tuneless singing on the rest of us with passion and with gusto. And it always gives joy to us to hear such things. Uh, there are those who, who are maybe not so much in our church but certainly many people I've met over the years who... Um, who have a very clear idea, a rigid idea of what the worship service should look like. And often, you know, a traditional format would have been what they called a hymn prayer sandwich, which just means the layering. You'd have a hymn and then a prayer and then another hymn and maybe a short prayer and then a sermon and then a little prayer and then a hymn and then a final prayer. And it was always very predictable and it would run through the same kind of pattern every single week. And then there's others who, you know, maybe just don't see any need for anything like a worship service at all and just want to, you know, to borrow one of Jeremy's well-worn phrases, want to do life together. Not that he believes this in this format, but some people just want to get together around coffee tables and chat about God and stuff and do away with all the kind of service aspects, the formal aspects, the meeting aspects. 
So I know that in any given room of people, it'd be interesting to chat, but I, we, we would discover that even in this room, there'd be a, a whole plethora of opinions and feelings and emotions and all that kind of stuff that's brought to the worship service when you come to see. And so what I want to do is try and bring a little bit of clarity and just focus us on the most important things and really just ask this simple question. Why, why do we sing? Why does it matter that we sing? Why does it matter how we sing? What does it mean to God that we sing? Why do we sing? This is the question I'm asking. I want to give you, I want to give you three answers. And as Jeremy said earlier, we're going to set aside a little bit more time at the end for, um, for responding and for doing this. But let me give you my first answer to the question. Why sing? And I think the one answer is this. Like, put it like this. That we, you sing because you have to. I don't mean because you're forced to. I don't mean because you're commanded to. I mean you sing because you have to. Because there's something that's very human about the irrepressible need to give birth to song when, you're, think, when, you, are, when you feel something deeply. Um, when the early church was was engaging in what we've been describing, these radical devotions, these practices, things like being devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and so on. Most of the other things that they were doing, these practices, were, as I've been describing them, they were devotions. They were deliberate practices. So they consciously decided, we need to do this and this and this, and they they set aside time for each of these elements. But when you read how Luke describes their sung praise, it doesn't seem to be so much one of their devotions, but rather more like an outburst. He describes them being, having glad and generous hearts, praising God. It doesn't seem to me something that they are disciplining themselves to do, but rather something that just kind of is erupting from the congregation, from the people of God. And it's almost like there's just something very inevitable about the need to worship God and to praise him through song. And I think, if you think about this, this is true in many aspects of life. That the stuff we really care about, we usually sing about as well. Almost without fail. You think about things like love and sport and war and many other parts of life, but these are really clear examples. Back in uh, 1995, when I was... I was 12 years of age, um, there was a song, you see if you recognize the lyrics, that came on the radio and occupied the number one uh, place on the charts for a full 12 weeks, if I remember rightly. I think it was 12 weeks. It was like way too long, anyway. And it went like this. that I feel it in my fingers, I feel it in my toes. The love that's all around me and so the feeling grows. It's written on the wind. It's everywhere I go. So if you really love me, come on and let it show. And it just... It, I mean, it's written by a band called Wet, 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 and I couldn't think of a better name for them, to be honest. Very, very wet. But there's something very... um, It it obviously resonated. That's my point. It resonated with people so deeply. Just the the melody and the lyrics. Yeah, I can feel it too. It's right in my fingers, you know. Love is all around me. And there's something about... You know, this is one area of life where you feel things so deeply, you have to sing about it, right? Same is true in, in sport. You know, we were... We're sick to death of hearing the song, It's Coming Home, weren't we? And then the disappointment that it's definitely not coming home. And of course, when you lose, the song that you see opposing, teams usually, uh, opposing fans usually sing is, you're not singing anymore. And it's a statement, isn't it? That because you've stopped singing, clearly, you're losing. Because people who lose do not sing anymore. Um, they are oppressed and they are defeated. And the same is true in, it's in the Bible. You see these same 
these same eruptions of song. It's a very human thing. It's been true of us since the earliest days of creation. When Adam first was presented, when God presented Eve to Adam as his, the woman he'd made for him, he, the, in, in, the, uh, in, the original, in the early chapters of Genesis, he, Adam sang a song about Eve. It's just four lines. It's not, um, it would never probably reach number one in our day and age at least, but it, four lines about woman, her being called woman because she was taken out of man. And he's obviously overcome with, you know, he's knocked sideways by her, I think. And he has to sing. He has to sing. And the same is true as you go through the Bible. When you're <clears throat> reading the story of the Exodus, that early account of God's incredible power, his delivering power, how he performs miracle after miracle after miracle. And the Israelites are on the edge emotionally all through the experiences of God, you know, doing incredible miraculous things and them thinking, will we be free? Will we be free? Will we be free? And ultimately culminating them in crossing the Red Sea. And when they reach the other side of the sea and they're finally free of the, the grip of the Egyptians, the first thing they do is they sing a song. And Miriam also sings a song because it's, it's almost like they've gone through such an, an overwhelmingly deep experience. And they've experienced God in such a profound way. The only way they can cap it, the only way they can kind of seal it, that they can confirm and, and affirm to one another what they've just experienced is to turn it into a song. To sing about God and his greatness and his rescuing power. And you see this being played out in all kinds of ways all through the Bible. Um, when people experience God's power or whatever's happening. You know, even when David kills the Philistine Goliath. There he is. He's, he's, a, he's a, basically a kind of a teenage lad. And he's killed this mammoth of a man who is just overwhelmingly intimidating. And um, what happens? The young girls in Israel, they obviously think he's something special. You know, it says of him that he was ruddy and handsome. He had red hair. And uh, he, David was, was handsome and admirable. But they sing a song. Saul, the king, has killed his thousands. But David's killed his tens of thousands. Again, never going to be a bestseller, but it was, it was a song nonetheless. And, you know, you can see this. This is just human nature. It's what I'm trying to say to you. It's human nature that when we, the deepest things that we experience in life are, in a way, only complete when we can put them in, in song form. And I think that's what you're seeing happening in the Bible. Now, for the person who has encountered God in a kind of, in a saving way, you've experienced his power. You've, you know, let's say you've, you've experienced the reality of what it's like to be forgiven, the depths of your sin being wiped away, forgotten, and being lifted from a very dark place to a place where you are finally safe. The Psalms describe this. Psalm 40 says, I I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Anyone who's become a Christian, that is their experience. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. I knew that my life was, without God's help, heading nowhere good. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. I was stuck. I was stuck in bad habits. I was stuck in wrong ways of thinking. I was depressed. There was, there was so much that was wrong with my life without God. Worst of all, I was sinful and overcome by my sin. He drew me up out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The psalm's describing what it's like to experience the saving power of God, which is what it means to become a Christian. And then he says, he put a new song 
in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Anyone who's experienced something so utterly life-changing will know how it feels then to sing back to God the greatness of what he's done. The psalmist says it's almost like God just put a song in his mouth, like shoved it in and it had to come out. And I think that's almost like the feeling. That's what I mean when I say you sing because you have to. It's not like there's really an option here. You sing because you've seen and experienced something of the amazing character and the wonder of who God is. In Psalm 126, the psalm that we were reading this weekend in our community Bible reading, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. If you've ever been through an experience in life where something so overwhelmingly good has happened to you that it's felt like you were dreaming. And this is what he's describing. He's saying the thing we all hoped for, the restoration of the blessing and favor of God on our city, in our community. He said when that happened, it felt like we were dreaming. And then he says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. As they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. It's this idea that it's almost like the experience is incomplete until your mouth is filled with the praise of God, having experienced his wonder. When Jesus, in the week before he was crucified, he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. And there's a bit of a, a rapturous euphoria that captures the people, such that they start honoring him as a, an incoming king, really, laying palm branches in front of his feet, laying their cloaks down in front of the do- for the donkey to walk on, sort of making a red carpet, in a sense, for him to come into Jerusalem. And as they're shouting, they're saying this in Luke 19, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're overwhelmed with the greatness of who they see Jesus to be in that moment. And the jealous Pharisees who, you know, continually are... The loggerheads with Jesus all through the Gospels. What do they say? They tell him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They, they can't stand it because they think he's making a false claim about himself. They think he's a blasphemer. They think it's an ugly thing that Jesus would be accepting this kind of praise from people. And then Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. You sing because you have to. You sing because if you didn't sing... It'd be like a volcanic pressure would erupt from even the rocks around us. Creation has to praise God. I love how um, in his book about the Psalms, C.S. Lewis, uh, I think, captured this well. When he asked why we, he he asked the question why we praise. And he says, he essentially makes this, this argument that you praise because it completes the joy of an experience. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And he gives some examples of what he means by this. He says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. You ever been around two people who are sickly in love with each other? had the misfortune of overhearing the conversation. I had friends who, who, very, who played out their whole courtship before they got married on Facebook in front of the whole world, <laughs> posting on one another's walls about how, how much they adored each other. 
And really, you wanted to vomit every time you logged on <laughs> to Facebook. And, but, you know, the question, why, Lewis is asking, why, why do they feel the need to keep saying it to one another? And then he answers. He says, the delight is incomplete till, is it, till it is expressed. There's something that sort of completes and rounds out the experience of joy when you can speak about it. He says, it's like when you discover a new author, you have to tell someone. When you see a wonderful scene, you want to you grab someone and share the experience. Praise completes the experience, he says. And he says, it's no less true in your experience of who God is. To love God just internally, just as an individual, is not enough. You have to speak of him, sing of him, praise him. You have to. You have to. There's no alternative. Of course, if we're going to put it like that, you know, in a sense, this becomes a bit of a diagnostic. If you find it difficult to sing about God, if none of what I'm saying makes any sense to you, you think, I don't have to sing. I don't want to sing. If, it's, if you've never felt that kind of erupting force from inside you, then it, it calls into question what kind of relationship with God you think you have and whether you've known God in a real way. Because the first mark of the person who's come into a saving relationship with Jesus, who's become part of the family, is that your love for him so grows that you have to sing. You want to sing. You have to praise him. I would urge you, before you think about what singing means, think about what it means to know Jesus. That's my first answer. You have to. Here's a second answer. You sing because you need to. Put it like this, it's good for you. It does you good. I I think the truth is, all of us would admit to this, that um, we don't always spring out of bed ready to sing the praises of God. We don't always come to church ready to praise Him passionately and fervently. I know it's true because I often survey what's going on in the congregation as we're worshipping together. And I know that we don't all arrive equally ready. I feel it myself. It's obviously true of us. Now, I think one thing you've got to understand, as I just mentioned, actually, is that that's, that's a symptom of something else, isn't it? It's a symptom of what's going on internally. Now, what is it that God has called us to? He's called us to love him. The, the first commandment, the greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, every faculty and every fiber of your person of your humanity, is called to love God. And that's what obedience is. That's what pleases him. That's what he loves and delights in, what he's called us to. And the, the basic point you've got to understand here, up to now what I've been saying is that singing is expressive. It kind of lets out what's inside. It's kind of, that's the direction of flow. But understand this, it also works in the opposite direction. Singing is not only expressive, it's also transformative. That to... Engage in praise and worship of God in this way actually transforms your experience of God. It can do soul work, it can do heart work, it can do mind work and body work, which is what I'm going to describe to you in a moment. Think about this in terms of your faculties. Jesus told us to love God with heart and soul, mind and strength. The first thing is when you sing, it awakens your heart. Music has that power, doesn't it? I, I don't know... Why? It's, I think it's a reflection of God's creativity 
I think it's a reflection of who God is, actually. It's part of the image of God in us. Zephaniah 3 speaks of the God who sings over us. But we have been so built that music has a potency that we don't even fully understand. And it has a potency to affect you in a visceral, gut way, doesn't it? It affects you, it kind of bypasses the mind. It does things to you that you don't fully understand. And this can be harnessed in ordinary experiences of life. You ever been to one of those tube stations in one of the dodgy parts of town where you're checking that you're not going to be mugged and what do they play in the tube station? They play classical music to calm everyone down. And it's like, it's not that, that people love classical music, it's rather that it works in an unconscious way and it's proven to reduce crime levels in places that are prolific in crime. And, you know, that's an example of what we're talking about. You ever been to a a birthing suite where, you know, you can have the option of not only dimming the lights, but also, because apparently women give birth more easily if they are calm and in control. And, you know, it's it's not how birth works in my observation, but apparently this is true. And one of the things you can have is, you know, you can play your sort of new agey, pan-pipey, synthesized music, which soothes and calms you so that the whole process goes a little bit more simply. Or you think about nightclubs. Nightclubs have harnessed this to the extreme. But there's something about the rhythmic beats and the melodies and the intertwining of the two and the darkness and the lights. But it works, it bypasses the mind to affect you in a visceral way, to make the heart race faster, to make you feel euphoric, to make you feel potentially even the feelings of being in love and certainly aroused in a context. And so it's working, it's the power of music to work, even to bypass the mind so as to work at a heart level. And it can be harnessed for good and it can be harnessed for evil, obviously. Now, why is that important? Because the Bible tells us that God wants your heart. He's not interested in mere cold obedience. He wants people who are passionate about him. I I can't understand the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart any other way. It has to mean that he wants us to love him in a way that you feel in the deepest part of you. Remember that the biblical word for heart generally referred to the gut. Which is where you feel a number of your emotions, isn't it? You feel it down here. He's saying to love God, you have to love him down there. You love him with the inner person. And somehow it seems to me that the gift of singing and appraising God is one of the ways that we can awaken and feed and fuel heart affection for the living God. And that's what Paul's saying in Colossians 3 when he, he tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Something very precious, isn't there, about praise, sung praise and worship to awaken passion in new ways. You might ask, and I think this is a really valid question, whether there is a kind of consequent danger of music, just as it can be abused in all kinds of ways. It can, be, it can create false emotion or it can manipulate emotion that isn't genuine, isn't real. And I think the obvious answer is definitely yes, without a doubt. I don't think that just because you're in the context of a church environment that we're free from this kind of, what you might think of as slightly more worldly or fleshy aspect to the way music can work on us. It can, you know, it can be manipulative and it can, it can it change you just temporarily. And that's not what Christ is after. But it seems to me that when you, when you think about biblical praise, there's something about the wedding of 
of music with truth. You know, Jesus called us to worship in spirit and in truth, which has a heart-shaping effect. It's not just a temporary effect. It, should be a, it changes your heart. It rewires your heart. It transforms your heart. So we sing because we need to, because firstly, it, it awakens our hearts in new ways. But here's another aspect of this. I think you sing because you need to, in that it also shapes your mind. Another faculty of your, your being. Think about how mu- words set to music are often the stickiest kinds of words, aren't they? So my children, before they knew what letters of the alphabet meant or symbolized or the importance and power of them as letters, they knew, what, they knew the word elemento, which is from the middle of the alphabet, right? They knew it as a sound. They'd memorized elemento. And neither of them, you know, when they were very young, had any idea that that was four letters, L-M-N-O, but they, they'd memorized it. It was sticky because of the tune. A varying tune when you're dealing with an 18-month-old that, you know, transforms every time they try it, but a tune nonetheless, L-M-N-O. And the same is true at the other end of life. You know, when people, you know, when people start to lose their mental faculties, and, um, you know, whether through dementia or through um, clumsiness and... Um, <laughs> There are, you've seen, I've seen stories, some YouTube videos of people with Alzheimer's, very advanced Alzheimer's, who might know, remember nothing of their life, or who, who people are around them. But, but music and song sticks. It's still there. It's very interesting, isn't it? How it's almost a different part of the mind altogether. And I think that God made us this way for a purpose. So you ask, why is that important? Well, partly because we have a very rich faith. The Christian faith is incredibly rich in the sense that you can spend your entire life diving in the ocean, swimming in the ocean of of learning about who God is and his ways. And you will not exhaust that knowledge, not even close. I think that we will spend eternity developing a deeper knowledge of who God is. We will be constantly learning. But we are also very forgetful people. And because of these reasons, music has the power not only to teach us, but also to remind us of the things that matter most. Even the simplest things that every Christian should know, sometimes it's only songs that that help stick the thoughts in your mind. I think about how, you know, all of us, from time to time, sin in ways that we are ashamed of, feel guilty about. And the emotions of shame and guilt are... Tricky emotions to deal with, aren't they? Because even as you want to come to God in repentance, it's very hard to always accept the forgiveness of God in that moment. And then a song like Before the Throne of God will come to mind. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and breathes for me. And there's that precious verse, when Satan tempts me to despair, when I feel like I am unable to wrestle with the weight of temptation. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, points it, pokes you in the guilt, upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. It's amazing how people who do not really, have not fully grasped the doctrine of justification by faith alone, somehow the song makes it stick. It changes the way you feel about God, about yourself, about your life. Think also about another example is when you're walking through suffering. There are songs that have been written so 
that so perfectly capture what it means to trust God when you're walking through suffering. And you may have sung them a hundred times and never needed them because you haven't really suffered. And then when you suffer, suddenly the song means something so much more deep and, and, need, and needful and essential in those moments. Think about a song like, Blessed Be Your Name. You know, when the sun's shining down on me, when well's all as it should be, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I walk through the desert place, when I'm found in the wilderness or caught in the wilderness or however it goes. I've forgotten it, which is ironic. <laughs> blessed be your name. <clears throat> and of course, it's an echo of the book of Job. Job says, you give and take away. The good stuff comes from you, and under your sovereign hand, I experience bad things in life. Regardless, he says, blessed be your name. Matt Redman put it to music, and somehow the music makes it stick, and we suddenly understand the theology of Job more deeply than having read the book. Because most of you scratch your head and think, what is this book about? (laughs) Now you get it. You sing to awaken your heart, to shape your mind. And also, I want to add this as well, to, to engage your body. To love God with your body. Your body matters to God. When Jesus called us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He was speaking of being a willing servant with every, every cell in this body that is you. And you know you sin with your body. But you also have the opportunity to glorify God with your body. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's dealing with sexual sin. He says glorify God in your body. Now, if that's true, then what you do with your body matters to God enormously because it is you. It's not just the part of you that you own. It's not like the modern view is that your body is a kind of machine that houses the real you somewhere inside, which is why our bodies are changeable and we can, we can, they're plastic. We can transform them to reflect better the real us inside. But that's not the biblical view at all. The biblical view is, no, your body, that's you. So what you do with it matters to God enormously. Now, what, where does this come into playing in worship. Well, in this way, that, you know, if you've grown up in a Western context, and particularly a kind of white Anglo-Saxon religious context, then you'll know that the way, particularly in Britain, I think, the way white people like to worship is with as minimal movement possible. And just mainly with the mind, I suppose. And uh, there's no engagement of body, not in an ideal context, because we prefer to be as, you know, as formal as possible all of the time. And the reality is the Bible doesn't, you know, the Bible says minimally that when you come to praise God, sing loud. Psalms are often calling for loud shouts, loud praises. But there's much more than that. It calls for hands raised, kneeling, lying prostrate before God. Loud shouts and singing, of course, but with all these accompanying ways of expressing praise and adoration and obedience to the living God. Dancing. Clapping. Because he wants you. And your body is you. Now, this matters in, in both directions. You know, when you're thinking about the worship is expressive of what's really going on in your heart, you can think how, well, that means that that your body tells a story about your spiritual life. And that when people are reluctant 
maybe apathetic, and maybe even you know your body language says something about your relationship with God when when you when you never kneel before Him, when maybe you slouch or mumble. I don't want to overstate this, but I think it is all indicative, isn't it, of what's really going on in the inside. The same is true, though, of people who, in my experience, who love God enormously, you see it in their body. They're excited when they talk about God. Their body moves. When they pray, they often fall on their knees or on their face. And when they worship, there is an eruption. The chest is out. The voice is loud. I've seen this so many times. it's It's not a false thing. It's an expression of what's really going on in the inside. If worship is expressive, then it, it indicates something about your spiritual life, doesn't it? What you do with your body matters. But it works again the other way around. It's not just expressive, it's also transformative. It means that the cold, <clears throat> the cold heart can be awakened through the deliberate engagement of the body in worship. That even when you don't feel it, to sing loudly does you good. To fall on your knees allows you in that moment to say to God, I surrender to you even if I'm struggling with sin and temptation. To raise your arms and say, I'm here to serve you. Remember the psalmist asked the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. God isn't just interested in your heart, he wants your body as well. And it's never more obvious to me in a church context than when we praise him. We're offering him our bodies. We're expressing he's greater than us in the way we posture ourselves before him physically. You sing and you praise because you need to. It's good for you. It changes your experience of God. Here's my last point. You sing because God enjoys it. I don't think that people readily understand this. And again, the evidence, in my view, is that I know people who have been walking with God for years who are reluctant to offer praise that is passionate. And when we have half-hearted praise, I think it betrays a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of the reality that God loves your praise and your worship. Maybe also it's accompanied by a sense of insignificance in that moment, that God doesn't see me, that I'm just little me. But think about this. If it truly sunk into your spirit, the God who made you takes pleasure in your praise, in your worship, and particularly in your song praise and worship, that he delights in it, wouldn't that change the way you engaged? I know it's true. I'll tell you why in a few reasons. One is because he commands us to praise. I can point you to so many passages. And God doesn't command what we can't do, and neither does he command what he doesn't take delight in. To obey him brings him joy and delight. So merely at that level, to obey the Bible and to sing to the Lord God brings him pleasure because it's an act of obedience. Even the passage we read, Colossians 3, sing, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There it is. need no more evidence than that. God wants you to do it. But here's another aspect to this. I think God loves us singing because it is a very explicit declaration of dependence upon him. And God loves dependence. 
in Psalm 147. <clears throat> there are a couple of moments in that psalm where he talks about the need to sing to God. Verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. Verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion. And in between those two verses is the description of what God dislikes, what he doesn't take delight in. He says, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And he's using military pictures. A great army might march out to battle depending on the strength of the legs to carry them into battle and the strength of horses to march. And he's saying, God is not interested in your self-sufficiency and independence, your displays of strength and ability and might. He doesn't take pleasure in any of that. He says what he takes pleasure in is those who fear him, who are humble, who know how to fall before him and acknowledge his greatness and your absolute dependence, which is why I believe that the most perfect way you can sum up what Christian maturity is, is with the word dependence. The more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more childlike you become. The more you see your need for him. And somehow, the psalmist who wrote those words understands that singing and praising God is when that is most explicit. Sing praise to the Lord, he says. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. It's when we give voice to things that I don't think we say just in our normal day-to-day speech. When we talk, we sing about the greatness of God with greater language and we suddenly see our smallness before him and feel his greatness, don't we? Here's another thing. My last idea for you on this. The Bible tells us that God enjoys his people. And particularly... As we praise him. Psalm 149. It says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. You may feel like you are not the kind of person who can bring God pleasure because you know that your life is mixed. There are moments when you feel like you're living for God and moments when you feel like you're backsliding and you never know why. When you feel like whatever you bring to God is kind of mixed, it's kind of dirty, it's hypocrisy. And it's true for all of us in a sense. Even if we walk with a clean conscience, we know that in reality our hearts are not perfect. And it's a puzzle, isn't it? How can God take delight in people like us? How can we come into his presence and praise him and and he actually enjoys it? It's a puzzle until you understand what the Bible answers that with. The one person who lived in whom God took perfect pleasure was the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was baptized, the Father's voice came down from heaven. This is my beloved son on whom I'm well pleased. And he said it more than once in the life of Jesus. And the Christian is the person whose life is hidden inside Christ's. So that when you come to worship God, you gather with the saints, as we're called, the holy ones. 
That holiness is a gift because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your praises arise, as it were, through Christ to the Father. And they become acceptable because they are doused with and smothered with the fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who pleased the Father. The least worthy of us can come into the Lord's presence and know that as we praise Him, even in our weakness, even as we try and summon what dregs of spiritual strength we might have, as we praise Him, the Lord takes pleasure on it and smiles down upon you. He loves it. His favor is on you. Now, on that note, I want us to just bow in prayer. In a few minutes, I will hand out the bread and the wine for communion. Which is, of course, the ultimate expression of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ toward the Father. He offered up his body. He poured out his blood. And in a sense, it was the greatest act of praise, the greatest act of worship, the greatest act of obedience. And it's the one act that makes our worship, our praise, our obedience acceptable to the Father. And we'll eat the bread and we'll drink the wine and we'll approach God confidently to praise him. But let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you have created and made us in such a way that we have ways and means of enjoying you. Just as, Lord, you've made us to enjoy the world we live in. You've given us eyes and ears and taste and smell and touch so that, Lord, this world can bring pleasure and delight to our souls. You've also given us spiritual senses and abilities that enable us to enjoy you. And I thank you for the gift of singing. I thank you for the gift of being able to praise you. I thank you, Lord, that we, of all people alive, have someone to thank for the good things that we enjoy. Because we can come to you, Lord, and we can erupt in praise before the living God, knowing that we have a loving Father. And I ask, Lord God, that as a church, that our singing would be vigorous, heartfelt, an expression of hearts that love you, but also that you would transform us as we praise you. The people who come in cold will be brought to life through the praise of this church as the Spirit moves among us. And I ask even now that we would enjoy some sweet moments in your presence. Bring out of our hearts, call out of our hearts, heartfelt thank and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.